This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Learn Liberty, The Young Turks, The Jimmy Dore Show, Bruce Dixon, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Best of the Left Activism, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. Now, sit back, relax, and smoke them if you got them. Here are three of the most bizarre, strange, and frankly unbelievable kind of reasons that have been given for prohibiting the sale and use of drugs. The war on drugs, contrary to what many people believe, has been going on for a long time. The very first international anti-drugs conference was actually called by no less a person than the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II. Maybe that's why so many people involved in this campaign want to be called Tsars. Although you'd think they would remember what happened to him, and maybe not be quite so keen to have that title. Now, over the years, a whole number of reasons have been given for sustaining the war on drugs, for extending drug prohibition and the like. Many of these are so preposterous to uh, any sane person's ideas, you wonder how on earth they ever got credence. One argument which was made, for example, for banning opiates in the United States in the 1890s, and which was also made for uh, banning the sale of cannabis in the 1930s, was that it would lead to miscegenation. The idea was that the drugs in question were going to be taken by respectable white girls and turn them into sex-crazed maniacs who would then want to have sex with Chinese people or Mexicans. Apparently, nothing could be worse. Another constant theme or note idea was that the drug business, the trade in drugs, if you will, was part of an international conspiracy run by all sorts of nefarious interests. These interests varied from one period to another. On some occasions, it was the International Communist Conspiracy. Uh, on other occasions, it was the Yellow Peril. Uh, on yet other occasions, it was a worldwide conspiracy of aliens and lizards, particularly the British royal family, who, as we all know, are in fact uh, lizard-shaped aliens with a bad human disguise. The third kind of popular reason which is often given is the idea that somehow drugs are going to make their users into idle, unproductive layabouts who want to do nothing else in life except have a good time and particularly, again, of course, have lots of sex. Now, the argument here, you might say, is a bit more plausible, except that you do have to wonder what the assumptions are behind it. The basic notion is that your life belongs to the government and it's your job to be productive. It's your job to be basically the kind of person who never really wants or tries to have a good time, certainly not a good time involving mood-altering substances. Uh, and so the notion here is that in fact what you should be doing is simply uh, avoiding any kind of temptation at all possible. And you do wonder in this case why these arguments are not applied to other kind of areas of life. But let's not give the people who make these arguments any more ideas. Some commentators on TV have decided that they're going to go on a rampage against pot. It is dangerous. It's for fat and lazy people. You think I'm kidding? No. Literal. That's what Nancy Grace said. Let's begin the festivities. Do you think legalizing pot to, for, for recreational use, do you think that's a good idea? I think it's a horrible idea. 
And I speak not only after studying it and reading every shred of scientific and research data out there, but after seeing what it does to people on an everyday level. People would drop out of work. They would become lethargic. I mean, come on. Ask yourself, do you want your cab driver to be high on pot? You know, listen, if you do it responsibly, uh, you don't get behind the wheel. You do it in a, in a private, confined space. You do it safely. No harm, no foul. You like mean drinking. a private space like your home where you're supposed to be taking care of your children or cooking at a gas stove or lighting a fireplace? You mean that place? Yeah, no. Not a good idea. Okay. Uh, look, I don't want, when I'm at work, I don't want my babysitter high on pot. Hmm. All right? Does anybody? Do you want your children? Do you want your parents, your sister, your brother to be taken care of or driven around by somebody on pot because it's okay in Colorado? You know what? Colorado gets what they ask for. I know people are screaming at the television agreeing with you I'm sure. and vehemently disagreeing with hey, you. Hey, look, the ones that are disagreeing are lethargic sitting on the sofa eating chips. Oh, pot. that is a fat statement. There. There. She proved it. Oh, science. My bad. <laughs> okay. I didn't know she was going to come in with all that evidence. <laughs> See, if you disagree, I've read all the scientific facts and research papers on this. And if you disagree, you're on a couch right now. I know it. And you're fat. You're obese. I didn't know that smoking pot made you fat. I know it gave you the munchies. I didn't know it made you fat. And lazy, you are lethargic. I read all the scientific papers and I scream on TV for a living. So I would know. Oh, you're going to do it at home. Are you crazy? You got gas stoves there. What do you think happens to gas stoves when you're smoking dope on your couch? Boom! Explosions! Obviously. The one thing she does have a good point on, uh, if you start smoking dope, uh, you drop out of work. Uh, hey, uh, Amir, can you take a shot of Jesus, uh, our director for today? Oh, right. Jesus didn't show up to work today. Oh, that's Amir instead. I don't know. Nancy Grace has a point. <laughs> These people are supposed to be the people telling you on TV what to think. <laughs> yeah, what do I TV is a worry Who listens to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fat, lazy, exploding gas stoves, children melting in the corner like, eh, what did mommy do? <laughs> Cab drivers, do you want your cab driver smoking pot? Well, I don't want them loaded on vodka either. And both would be illegal no matter what. This goes for argument on television. All right, well, we're not done yet. Uh, here comes Papa Bear. Bill O'Reilly's going to weigh in. Let's begin with the left. What is it about the drug culture, the internet culture, that's so compelling for some of them? Well, I don't think it's compelling, but I think that if you start to arrest their children uh, and give them records and put barriers in front of their futures and their careers, I think people say, wait a second, as you said in the previous segment, this is soft drug use. Why are you arresting and giving this kid a record, especially minority kids disproportionately? They're the ones who get only arrested. Only dealers, Juan. There's no, uh, no mass no, arrest no, of no, users. No, they get a yeah, ticket, yeah. Juan. It's almost impossible. <laughs> the records are expunged if they're juveniles. Oh, you know what listen, the game is here. This is, it is, not, this is not a crime this, that is actively, actively um, pursued by district attorneys. All right, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna discount that argument. Once, Mary Catherine. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I 
love television, man. Okay, so Juan, they just get tickets. They first of all, they, they nobody ever actually gets arrested for a party. Really, really. And wh what study did you see that in? Okay, now I can show you a hundred studies that show you the opposite. In fact, we have over and over again on this show. I can show you over three thousand people sitting in jail for life on nonviolent offenses. Okay, and most of those were for drug offenses, and that's and most of those were possession. Okay. So now, uh, no, no, you just get a ticket. He makes up stuff all the time. He's unbelievable. And then, so Juan Williams got him. There's no question about it. So Juan, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss that argument. <laughs> oh well. Okay, uh, my bad. I didn't know you were going to dismiss it. Okay. Oh well. I'll have to try again. So they try again. So now, she, this ham lady <laughs> is going to come in and try to make decent points. She's also going to be dismissed. The disdain that he shows here. Like, is, is the woman still talking? I mean, watch for yourself, O'Reilly. You know what he did to Juan Williams was bad. Watch this. Mary Catherine, you've got a baby. You want that baby to be smoking pot? Is it a he or a she? Oh, is it a he or she? She, and I would rather right. she not when, smoke pot. When that pot. baby is 13, 14 years old, you want the baby to be smoking pot in moderation, do you? Uh, I would rather not have her smoking okay, weed, and I'm All not right. a huge fan. But look, that doesn't why, mean it has why, to be Mary illegal, Catherine? though. Here, why no, would you not want thing. your Wait, child? No, Bill, answer my question, no, Mary Catherine. No, I'm answering the question by saying it doesn't have to be illegal because I can step in and handle right. things. So and the I'm going to say you don't want to answer. You don't want to engage. paternalism in a nanny state. Mary Catherine, you're babbling. You don't want to engage in this conversation. No, you're babbling. You're babbling. I'll go back to Juan. I asked Mary Catherine why she wouldn't want her 12 or 13 year old. Um, child to use marijuana, whereupon Mary Catherine punted and started to oh. talk about social issues in a general sense. You agree with me that By a mass way, usage? Wait, illegal. Mary Catherine, wait. Okay. All right. Uh. So Juan, you agree with me that a mass usage of a soft drug like marijuana is going to weaken the country? It's going to hurt children. <laughs> oh, how awesomely dismissive was that? Wait, Mary Catherine. Wait, you're babbling. Like a woman, okay. Uh, now, and the thing is, put, put put the woman thing aside, put the minority thing, put all that aside, okay. It, it, basically, they got him, man. They were making perfectly good points, and oh, that was making him mad. Could you see it? That whole "we'll do it live" was like boiling up inside of him. Like, play us out. What does that mean? Play us out, right? And he's like, "You're babbling. You're ba because he was babbling. That's what he does. He does projection." He had no good points. Do you want your baby to smoke pot? That was his main point. Do you want your baby to smoke pot? No, I also don't want my baby to have alcohol. But it doesn't mean I think alcohol should be illegal. I don't want my baby drinking whiskey. Okay. And at 13 or 14, I don't want him getting loaded up on rum. That doesn't mean I think that rum should be illegal or pot should be illegal. You're babbling. You're babbling. Okay. Get off. Get off. Or Juan, back to you. Jesus Christ. What the hell is going on? What's going on here, Bill, is that your arguments Tides go in, tides go out. I can explain that. You're the only one who can. So Colorado is way out in front of California in the marijuana legalization, 
And uh, the Denver Post hired a pot editor. And Bill O'Reilly having a tough time with it. It's not going to happen in the Denver way. Post. They're going to tell you what the best bud is. I feel like Spicoli. It sounds like it's much more okay, than that. They're going to tell you what the best bud is, where to buy it, how to prune it, how to roll it. This is promoting the use of an intoxicant by the Denver Post. Oh, it's almost as bad as when they run cigarette ads in the Wall <laughs> Street Journal. Ads, yeah. <laughs> or the New York Post. when they Don't they have ads for Chevis Regal? I mean, they, he's everything right. that he's saying. Okay, right. we, we go on. Why don't you just set it up like, here's the bar in Denver where you can get the cheapest chasers and the most gin for your money. I think they do list happy hours. I don't think... Oh, that, yeah. Guess what? A lot of... Uh, a lot of newspapers have a food and wine section yes, they have. where they do talk they about do tell you. It's outrageous. They do, yes. Okay. This is exactly what it is, Mary Catherine. Wow, talk about manufactured outrage, this guy. He's really revealing his old madness, yeah. right? Being this afraid of marijuana. They're going to tell you what buds to get. Yes, that's what I want to know. I want to know where <laughs> the good buds are and uh, where I should go and how it's going to It is affect. legal there, right? Yeah, it's all legal. Just like, yeah. just like well, their whole, his whole thing is... That you so if you smoke pot, there's only one reason to smoke pot, and that's to get high. But if you drink wine, you like the wine; it tastes good. It just happens to also get you inebriated. Yeah, right. So those people who make that argument are phony hypocrites, and that's really a really weak argument. That is BS. I've had people say that to me. You know, they go, "Well, I'll drink in front of my kid, but I won't smoke pot in front of my kid." I'm like, you know, the drinking is going to harm your kid way more than the pot smoking, mm -hmm. and that that's just you internalizing some kind of crazy bullshit. Right. That you were fed as a as a kid, and now you're going to pass it along to your kid. That's a cultural uh, prejudice. Yeah, when are you going to? I I find that a Panama red goes very well with fish. <laughs> <laughs> so by, here, by the way, he he, you know, uh, and I think she comes out and well, says, "He's got, let me oh, finish, okay. let me finish playing it." So he goes on. I disagree with you. I think it's a public policy issue that's going to be covered mostly like you a public policy. You can cover the issue. policy without getting a critic who has to ingest the substance. Okay, Mary I, that, that, that part that part is fair. If, if yeah, okay. So he's got an, he's got a problem with the guy who writes a column smoking pot, and just, he just does it. Why is this guy going to ingest it? It's uh, you know it makes me want to read that column now. Yeah, they have wine editors. They have, but they take booze advertising of all kinds. But Billow's letting his old man. Speak. Are the wine editors not not drinking the Are wine? Are they not drinking the wine? Yeah. The food editor never eating, just taking pictures mm -hmm. of the food. But she makes such an important point. This is one of two states that is trying right. ma trying marijuana for uh, public use legally, and it's a huge public policy question, and it is worth following on a regular basis. No doubt about it. And by the way, I didn't—I never heard uh, him talking about the problems of, like, say, an editorial decision like closing your foreign offices or, uh, you know, basically, like, serious editorial oh. pro mistakes that, that newspapers make. Right. This is He's just going off on this one column. Right. So he knows how to rile up his viewers right but cnn closes all of their overseas desks not a f peep no not a peep so here he goes on <laughs> then so he turns to he turns to juan williams uh okay friend of the then, the, then the denver post sends a memo to its employees <laughs> saying even though we have a marijuana critic and we're going to tell you where to get the best bud you can't use it on the premises of the denver post well, <laughs> So, again, he's the same thing, Bill, uh, that your company owns uh, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post. That you can't smoke cigarettes in any of those buildings.
Can't suppose so that this argument. So guess what? Juan Williams actually makes that point. Come on! Well, why do you have it any in no, anyway? Wait a minute! You can't smoke. You can't even smoke a cigarette in this building. Who's promoting tobacco? Not, what are you talking about? We, we don't, don't take any news for tobacco. No, we don't. The newspapers that we. Promote? I don't. We don't run the oh, newspapers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so he we don't he's talking about just us at Fox, not the company that I work for. So you're upset at the rest of your company? Are you upset at the rest of Fox Enterprises? That uh, you know, it's just come on. Here. He doesn't have a leg to stand on. He's just he's, he doesn't have he, a leg to stand and, on. And my favorite thing is he just he he asks someone on to browbeat them. Yes, right. So exactly. So so here he goes out a little. Oh, okay, bit. but that's part of our corporation. But I'm just saying, you know that all these products are now, and it's legal. Let me just emphasize that legal. Yeah. And the cops do not have to go We're out and promoting intoxicants. So again, so Ron Williams makes the point, and he just completely runs over him. Hey, hey, Fox, our corporation that we work for takes cigarette ads and don't allow people to smoke in the building that we work in. But that's different to Bill O'Reilly because it completely blows his argument out of the water. So, so that's why that's different. Uruguay is planning on selling marijuana for $1 a gram in an effort to stomp on criminal activity and drug trafficking, which yeah. we should be doing here in the United States, and I think we're moving kind of close to that. Um, basically what they want to do, and of course uh, the House of Congress there and uh, the President Jose Mujica agree that this is the best way to get rid of drug criminals, just make it accessible uh, by the government so people will buy from the government, and the best part about this is they're not selling some subpar marijuana. They want to sell a quality product Good for the for lowest possible price. Uh, Mujica sounds like a delicious drink. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that is, I love that last name. It's great. Yeah, and, and maybe they should uh, name uh, some delicious marijuana after. Uh, oh, I'll have a Mujica. There's that sounds of, pretty good. There's marijuana named after Obama. It's like OG Obama or something oh, like that. Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not, not that I know anything about it. No, no, of course not. <laughs> um, uh, look, we talked about Uruguay before and Mujica before. Mujica is literally the best president on earth. Okay, He's uh, the most humble guy. He gives away 90% of his salary to charity. And it's not because he's an incredibly rich guy already. He's not. He lives on a farm. I think he has a Beetle, like a Volkswagen Beetle that he drives, if I remember correctly. He's really of the people. It's, in fact, the democracy they have in Uruguay is amazing. And it makes me jealous here in America of what democracy can actually be if money doesn't rule politics, which it doesn't in Uruguay. And hence, one of the results is they don't have to be mentally handicapped. Like, everybody else, especially here in America, is, no! Drugs are, t marijuana is a gateway drug and it's going to make your mind melt and this is your mind on marijuana. Nonsense. Mm -hmm. So they can make rational decisions and realize marijuana is actually not that bad. It's actually good for you in a lot of ways. And if we don't sell it for a dollar, yeah. what's going to happen is we're going to have terrible criminal gangs that are going to be a much bigger problem than marijuana. So God bless Mujica. 
So let me jump in with that. You know, oftentimes a lot of countries will refuse to do uh, what Uruguay is doing because the U.S. gives a significant amount of foreign aid to a lot of different countries. And the U.S. wants to continue the war on drugs and the war on marijuana. So if you as a country decide, mm, okay, this American idea of, of, you know, keeping all these drugs illegal uh, doesn't really make sense for us, we want to change things around, they know that they uh, could lose that foreign aid. Now, there are other factors into play because you, the U.S. needs its allies, so they might not like take away all foreign aid from a country who changes their uh, that changes its drug laws. But it is definitely a factor in why so many countries still keep it illegal. Yeah, and uh, and that's why uh, Jose Mujica is even uh, more brave because he said, "Yeah, okay, that's fine, but we're going to do it this way." Okay, like the U.S. pushes everybody around, and he's not like a guy like Hugo Chavez was. Like I'm standing up to American, like there's a big press conference. Or, no, just quietly. Okay, that's your. That's like your opinion, man. Mm -hmm. And well, this is what we're gonna do because I'm representing my own people. of so-called war on drugs has been the rhetorical excuse for a nationwide policy of punitive over-policing in black and brown communities. Although black and white rates of drug use have been virtually identical, law enforcement strategies focus police resources almost exclusively upon communities of color. Prosecutors and judges did their bit as well charging and convicting whites significantly less often and to less severe sentences than blacks. The 40 years war on drugs has been the front door of what can only be described as the prison state in which African Americans are 13 percent of the population but more than 40 percent of the prisoners and the chief interactions of government with young black males is policing the courts and imprisonment. Given all that, the beginning of the end of marijuana prohibition, first in Colorado and soon to be followed by other states, ought to be great good news, but not necessarily. Ask yourself, what would it look like if policymakers wanted to end the prohibition of marijuana, but not necessarily the war on drugs? What if they desired to lock down the potential economic opportunities opened up by legalizing weed, to themselves and their class, to a handful of their wealthy and well-connected friends and campaign contributors? What if they wanted to make the legal marijuana market safe for predatory agribusiness, which would like to claim lucrative patents on all the genetic varieties of marijuana which can be legally grown, as they already try to do with other crops? If they wanted to do those things, the system in place in Colorado today would be a good start. In Denver today, low-income property owners cannot just plant pot in the backyard or on the roof in hopes of making one mortgage payment a year out of 12. It doesn't work that way. Ordinary households are limited to three plants per adult, 
and for reference, only the female plants are good for smoking, and they are prohibited from selling either the weed or the seed. To participate in the marijuana economy as anything except a consumer requires background checks, hefty license fees, a minimum of hundreds of thousands to invest, and the right connections. All this currently drives the price of legal weed in Colorado to over $600 per ounce, including a 25% state tax, roughly double the reported street price of illegal weed. So, to enable the state to collect that tax money, and the bankers, the growers, and the investors to collect their profits from marijuana taxed by the state and regulated in the corporate interests, cops, judges, and jailers in near-future Colorado and in your state as well figure to be just as busy as they always have been the last 40 years, doing pretty much what they've always done, conducting a war on illegal drugs, chiefly in the poorer and blacker sections of town, with predictable results. The end of marijuana prohibition is not designed to create jobs in our communities, nor is it intended to shrink the prison state. Our ruling class simply does not allow economic growth that they cannot monopolize, and the modern prison state has never been about protecting the public from drugs or crime prisons and our lifelong persecution of former prisoners serve only to single out, to brand, and to stigmatize the economic losers in modern capitalist society, so that those hanging on from paycheck to paycheck can have someone to look down upon, and so that they might imagine that this vast edifice of inequality is, if not just, inevitable. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Anyhow, I, I'm, I, you know, I may be... Uh... I may have, uh, in that last segment, uh, disclosed more to Cully and my audience. That, too much information, Tom. We don't know. We don't want to know how much pot you smoked when you were a kid, uh, or not. I don't know. I, I you know, I, but I, but I, I do have a strong opinion about this, and 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 the reason why is because I've, you know, I'm familiar with this, and I'm also familiar with alcohol abuse and the abuse of other hard drugs, both through personal experience and friends of mine, and I can tell you that. You know, there's some really nasty stuff out there. There's some stuff that will really rack your brain up out there. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I understand doing everything you can to keep things like that, some of these designer drugs and whatnot, um, out of the public sphere. But on the other hand, I think that anything that you can grow in your backyard should be legal. Just that simple. Um, and, and uh, you know, right across the board. So, 
anyhow, that's that's my take on it. And and I think that alcohol is one of the most destructive of our drugs. And you know, there was a big, uh, a really really strong case that was made successfully that alcohol was a destructive drug in the nineteen late nineteen twenties or early nineteen thirties, and it led to the prohibition of alcohol in the United States. And that didn't work out real well because people are. It's just the nature of of animals to want to alter their consciousness. We've got a new kitten, and uh, well, actually, we've got a fat old cat, Fang, who, he, he, I, I've got a chair, it's an office chair, it's just like the one I'm sitting in right now. It's, it's one of those, uh, oh, there's a fancy name for them, but, you know, it's, they're v- these very comfortable office chairs with the kind of uh, 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 netting underneath and on the back, and they're, they're very popular in offices. And you can spin it around, right? And this cat uh, in our on the boat, we've got a, a couch, and then there's the chair, and it's my old office chair, and it's sitting in the the, the salon, the, the living room of the boat, which is you know also kind of the dining room in the kitchen, <laughs> but you get it. And 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 in front of the TV, and so if we're watching TV, Louise gets up, she likes to sit in that chair. I'll I'll lay on the couch or sit on the couch. If she gets up and, like, you know, goes to get a glass of water or something, the cat immediately jumps on the chair because then I'll reach over with my foot and I'll start spinning the chair around. And this cat just loves for me to spin the chair around to the point where he's just, like, totally stoned. And then he'll jump off the chair and he'll just stagger around for, like, you know, three or four minutes as he's getting his balance back. And then once he gets his balance back, he'll jump up on the chair again and say, spin me around again. Right? Elephants seek out fermented fruit. Birds seek out fermented fruit. It is, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a, uh, primates take psychedelic plants and, and get high. I mean, there, all this is very well documented. There is built into all of us a, a need, I would say, to alter our consciousness. And some of us fill that need by doing things like bungee jumping and skydiving. And having done the, the latter, in fact, I broke my back the third time I, I was skydiving. I can tell you, it alters your consciousness. Some of us alter our consciousness by other kinds of risk-taking behavior. Some people alter their consciousness, uh, you know, by, uh, well, everybody, I, I suppose, does. Most people do uh, with, with sex as a way of altering consciousness, altering states, shall we say. Um, I mean, there's all these things that we do that just kind of pop us out of the average humdrum, day-to-day, normal state and into something else. Reading fiction, reading novels, going to the movies, watching TV. We do all these things to modify our baseline state. I am convinced that this is just a basic need and that that there's a, a, a certain percentage of the population, and I'm guessing it's actually... You know, I, I was saying 3% will be chronic abusers, and I think it's probably closer to 1% or 2% of people who are just going to, you know, no matter what it is, they're, they're, they just can't stop and they're going to they're gonna go nuts. But I think that probably more like 60 70 80% of us, maybe even 90 95% of us, on a regular basis, alter, you know, try to alter our consciousness in, in smaller ways. Not... You know, being perpetually stoned. That's that one or two or three or maybe four or five percent. You know, uh, but I think it's probably more like one percent because it would render you unable to work. And then you look at unemployment statistics and whatnot. But who knows? I, I, I don't know. I don't know the percentage of, 
of drug addicts in our population. I don't know the percentage of alcoholics, but whatever that percentage is, that's that's going to be with you no matter what. That's not going to go away just because you ban the substance. People are just going to go to something else. When alcohol was banned, people were drinking methanol and they were going blind. They were they were they were sniffing um, you know gasoline, and they were and they were becoming mentally retarded. I mean, literally getting brain damage from it. So if we're going to if we if we all have this you know wired need to occasionally alter our consciousness and some percentage of us whether it's 30 percent or 70 percent are going to do that with a substance be it a glass of wine or a toke why not make it the least destructive drug we can come up with and it seems like pot meets that criteria and so that's my argument for decriminalization and regulation i i share Collie's concern you know i don't want 10-year-old smoking pot. I think this is, should be an adult activity. President Obama has commented about marijuana legalization in an interview that he did with The New Yorker, and he spoke in favor of marijuana legalization. He said, I don't think marijuana is more dangerous than alcohol. He said this to Editor-in-Chief David Remnick, adding that smoking pot is less dangerous than drinking, quote, in terms of its impact on the individual consumer. He expressed approval for the recent efforts to legalize the drug in some U.S. states, citing the disproportionate number of arrests for marijuana-related crimes, particularly among minorities, as we have discussed on this program many times. He said in terms of pot legalization in Colorado and Washington, it's important for it to go forward because it's important for society not to have a situation in which a large portion of people have at one time or another broken the law and only a select few get punished. However... He did call marijuana a bad habit and a vice. He compared it to his previous cigarette habit, and he says he told his daughters that using marijuana is a bad idea, a waste of time, and not very healthy. He also said, listen, marijuana is not a wonder drug. Those that argue that legalizing marijuana is a panacea and it solves all these social problems, I think, are probably overstating the case. It's very important, I think, for President Obama to speak about this, but the reality is that President Obama also could be doing more at the federal level in terms of marijuana legalization. He did instruct federal authorities not to violate state legalization of medical marijuana, and that has been the source of much controversy and disagreement. But I think President Obama, legally speaking, could be making more attempts to change the federal status quo around marijuana if he wanted to, and or if he thought there was a political will to do it. Yeah, I think that's what he should be doing. I, I think talk is cheap, uh, and it doesn't seem like he has a, a stance on it, really. I don't know. I, I think that if, he, if a different president were to come along, that president could 
maybe just start enforcing again in states that have legalized marijuana, and that could be disastrous. So I'd like to see Obama try and get this handled at the federal level um, and just kind of set a precedent. Most people would agree, thinking critically, rationally, logically, that if someone wants to get high off of illegal drugs, they're going to be able to do it regardless of the, le the legality of the drug, although how you obtain the drug could certainly be different. So do we not prefer people acquire the drugs in stores that check IDs and pay taxes and take the power and money away from the cartels and all of the violence that surrounds the, 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 the sale, production, distribution, manufacture of illegal drugs? That seems to me to make sense. And when we step back and look at this study that was done for the National Institute on Drug Abuse by the University of Michigan, the actual drug use when we look at cannabis is near a 30-year high, while the use of drinking alcohol is at a 30-year low, yet alcohol still is, is, is causing so much more in terms of accidents, in terms of illness, etc., we have to open our eyes to the reality here. I want so much to open your eyes Cause I need you to look into mine Tell me that you'll open your eyes Tell me Also, people talk about Rob Ford's awful policies and actions a ton. He was actually ordered to leave office because of corruption and didn't. The crack tape is just our latest chance to stop this cockroach out. And I imagine, you know, when you got a right-winger, there's a healthy dose of uh, hypocrisy involved in something like that. Because, and here's why, and this is the same thing with uh, Rush Limbaugh. For years, Rush Limbaugh would go on and on talking about how people should not be weak and they should be punished by society for any type of moral or physical weakness. It is theirs to suffer through. We should not have any sympathy for these people. They are morally less than. He would say it about weight when he would lose weight, and then he would be quiet about it when he would gain his weight back. He would say it about cigarette smokers when he would talk about his formerly nicotine-stained uh, hands. But he doesn't do that anymore because he's back on the cigars. The idea that people could have weaknesses and that that's just simply part of the human condition has to be written out of what a right-winger's narrative is. Because if you accept the fact that some people for whatever reason, simply have problems that they are unable to overcome without help. Then you start getting into this very sticky and, and uh, ambiguous world where, hey, maybe it's not morally repugnant. Forget about the practical value of it, of helping people who don't have health insurance, of helping people who have fallen into poverty of helping people who can't find a job. 
of helping people who need more help in terms of education, of helping people who have an addiction. All of that goes out the window if you allow yourself to say there's no moral implications to someone being an alcoholic or being a drug addict or having made a wrong financial decision or of having a medical bankruptcy or of having lost their job because they pursued in an industry that ends up being dried off because of forces that are beyond their control. You cannot allow that to happen. And so the right-wing ideology, it's fundamentally hypocritic, hip hypocritical for you to have any human weaknesses at that point. Because once you admit that I have a human weakness that is beyond my capacity as a human, then you have to admit that for other people. And then you have to say, it's not morally wrong to help them. You could still make a pragmatic uh, argument, but that's much harder to sell. Because the reality is, societies function better if those who need help get help. So having an addiction having any type of manifest human frailty is fundamentally contrary to the right-wing narrative. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps was first a phrase coined to be ironic because it's impossible to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is literally impossible. The phrase was said and quoted and coined first to be ironic. People need help to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. There's no other physical way of doing it. That's why when you see a right winger who is addicted to something, it necessarily exposes them as a hypocrite. And then the question is just whether or not they have the means to get outside help. But their argument that being addicted or having a human frailty or having bad luck is somehow a sign of your lack of morality, your lack of moral worth, falls apart. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Now I don't want to 
You've reached the actively portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, families against mandatory minimums. The ineffectiveness of the war on drugs is not a new concept to listeners of this show. We regularly discuss the for-profit prisons, racist structure of the court system, and hurdles impeding a return to full citizenship in clips as well as in our voicemail and commentary segments. But what's often left out is a major and politically inconvenient cause of our prison population spike, mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Congress passed these sentencing laws back in the 80s as part of an attempt to appear tough on crime. Since then, the federal prison system has seen a nearly tenfold increase in incarcerations. Consequently, one out of every four Department of Justice dollars is spent on locking up mostly nonviolent drug offenders in federal prisons. This blend of nonsensical expenditure and obvious injustice has created the conditions for an unexpected collaboration between Tea Party Republicans and liberal Democrats in Congress. The new Charles Colson Task Force is an independent nine-member panel of experts tasked with issuing recommendations on federal prison reform. The panel is expected to focus on nonviolent, i.e. drug-related, crimes. The nonprofit, nonpartisan organization Families Against Mandatory Minimums has spoken out in favor of this effort to reform the criminal justice system. Families Against Mandatory Minimums was formed in 1991 to fight for, quote, smart sentencing laws that maintain public safety, unquote. Their goal is to reduce the financial burden of overcrowded prisons, push for programs that reduce crime and recidivism, and provide support for those affected by unfair sentences. Visit the Families Against Mandatory Minimums website, famm.org, to join their email list, find events in your area, and participate in their campaign to petition the U.S. Sentencing Commission to lower the federal drug sentencing guidelines. Attorney General Eric Holder has voiced his support for sentencing reform, and adding your name to this campaign provides pressure for both A.G. Holder and Congress to follow through. The commission is accepting public comment through March 18th, and as always, you can follow up by contacting your representatives at contactingthecongress.org to let them know that you stand with Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all, and some serious stuff is going down. Civil war, intolerance, AIDS, obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? We saw this weekend in the loss of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who died at the age of 46. The terrible tragedy of our war on drugs. Now, let me explain. I found this, first of all, I found this really interesting. Mike Gallagher is uh, one of my colleagues. He's a conservative talk show host. I think he's, he's over on Salem Radio. And uh, I don't know him well. You know, we've met a few times, but speak at the same conferences and things. But over on his website, MikeOnline.com, he said, Another senseless death, this time one of the greatest actors of our times. I wonder if he, if he started with marijuana. If you want to get pot lovers mad, dare to even ask the question if an Oscar-winning movie star who's found dead in his bathroom with a needle stuck in his arm started with marijuana. He's opposed to decriminalizing pot. And I, I guess you would uh, assume from Mike Gallagher's statement that we can expect to see an explosion of heroin 
um, overdoses now in Washington State and Colorado. And I think it's this uninformed, jingoistic perspective, which is widely embraced in America. Talkers Magazine, the, 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 this is how I learned of what happened, you know, Mike's experience, uh, what Mike Gallagher said, uh, because Talker says, um, that he got over 50,000 views and death threats against him, his family, and his dog. Uh, for posting this on his website, but I mean, mostly, you know, hey, he, he, this guy's getting some publicity, right, for coming out and saying this. I think it's, I think it's just, a, you know, it's a sad state of affairs. the The fact of the matter is, if you look at the experience of the United Kingdom and Switzerland and Canada up until last November which had turned heroin into a prescription drug and treated heroin addiction as a public health problem rather than a crime, that heroin doesn't ravage the liver the way alcohol does and heroin doesn't cause lung cancer the way smoking does. This is not a pro-heroin pitch. I actually think that there are medicinal values and even recreational values to pot. I don't think that of heroin. But that said, there actually is a medicinal value for heroin. It's a very, very powerful painkiller. I mean, you know, if morphine doesn't quite work but is almost getting you there, prescription heroin should be available, in my opinion. I mean, it's, it was originally sold as a cough medicine for children by Bayer. Uh, they, they came up with a brand name, heroin. You can find online pictures of the old 1918 bottles of heroin, cough syrups for children. It works. And it does work. It just has this side effect of being very addictive. But the principal two side effects of the use of heroin are addiction and the things that come along with it being illegal, which are principally disease and the threat of imprisonment. And if what Switzerland and England found was that when they made heroin a prescription drug and said to doctors, and very carefully supervised, Doctors who are specialists in addiction, not just, you know, any old doc. You may prescribe this to addicts to treat their addiction. And the heroin addicts would come into these clinics three times a day and shoot up, literally shoot up, with a brand new fresh needle. That their rates of HIV and hepatitis and other blood-borne infections plummeted. Crime dropped, because these guys didn't have to steal anymore to support a habit. Many of these heroin addicts continued their heroin addiction but went on, went back into the workplace, gained weight, got healthy, got jobs, and eventually quit using heroin. There have been a dozen documentaries done on this. There's, there, there's, all you have to do is go to YouTube and type in, um, prescription heroin. And you will, you'll see the BBC has done documentaries on it. The CBC has done documentaries on it. There, uh, there, there, there's a brilliant one done by Dutch television. In public health circles, this is not contested. So, A, the idea that because Colorado and Washington State have legalized pot, you're going to see an increase in the use of heroin, that's, that's nonsense.
you're going to see a decrease in the use of heroin in those states because people no longer have to need to go to illegal marketplaces to buy pot. And those illegal marketplaces where people were buying pot are also the places where heroin is sold. Number one. So actually, my prediction is five years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to be able to see the clear epidemiological trend that the use of heroin, and not just heroin, heroin, cocaine, and all the other illegal drugs that can be very, very destructive, that they are going, that their use is going to decline in those states. remember a 60 Minutes um, episode years ago that was about a program in Britain that tried to see if simply giving heroin addicts their heroin made any difference in their life or society or anything like this. And of course, you know, what made it an interesting story is that it did. It's obviously not enough of a scientific test, you know, to, to be the end-all be-all. But the gist of the story was that if you gave these heroin addicts their heroin, they could lead productive lives. And that a lot of the damage that we normally associate with heroin use is due to the lifestyle that heroin being illegal makes you adopt. You know, you lose your home, you lose your family, you're out on the street, and you're, you're stealing car radios for drugs and all these kinds of things. If you just give them the heroin, which is cheap as dirt, um, you know, were they better? And as I said, of course, it's not it's not a real story. If 60 Minutes does that and the the, Brit, the British uh, pilot program shows, guess what? They're not better. They're just as bad, of course. So so as a story, it was interesting because they interviewed all these heroin addicts who were productive members of society. They sounded like people in that book, Daily Rituals, I just talked about, have their little uh, shot of heroin in the morning or whatever. I don't, I don't remember what the delivery method was. Um, but it was interesting because what it started to show was that it's hard to separate the damage that the substance itself does from the damage that the substance being illegal in a society does. I mean, if Philip Seymour Hoffman can get legal heroin, is he dead today? I think he probably is because I think, you know, um, he fell into a trap a lot of heroin addicts fall into. Again, allegedly, if this is all true, we should say that. We don't want to malign a great, great actor, um, you know, needlessly. But I think he probably fell for the same things that, that a lot of addicts do, which is you end up using too much of the stuff because, you know, you used to use this much, and, and theoretically you could use the same amount And as any long-term heroin addict, I think, would know. Um, when you stop using, your tolerance level changes, and if you give yourself a dose that you used to be accustomed to after you've already weaned yourself off a little bit, it can kill you, and often does, or you're so intoxicated when you decide to have another shot that you're not really measuring very carefully, and boom, I mean, he just might have been under the influence when he you know, took that last, last shot and just didn't make a very smart choice of how much was in the syringe, you know? I mean, again, I think that's pretty common. So you ask yourself... 
what the problem is in that whole situation. Is it that Hoffman is dead? Because if the problem is Hoffman is dead, well, then perhaps there are things that could be done to prevent or minimize that possibility. If you say, well, this is a perfect example of why drugs are illegal, Dan, because they can kill you. Yes, but drugs are illegal, and Hoffman got it anyway and died anyway, just like a lot of other people. We want this stuff. That's the secret. That's the part that here in the United States we just won't acknowledge. And if you can't acknowledge that, then you can't come up with any common sense solutions. I mean, uh, the attitude we have in this country is that people don't want to do this, that they somehow try it for peer pressure reasons or whatever, and then get hooked and then have no choice. But what if they have a choice and choose to do it anyway because they like it? Now, we can say that these people are idiots all day long, but lots and lots and lots of people do this. Why are they doing it? And why have they done it for thousands of years? Forever. There's something in us that wants some of this stuff. And I, I truly believe that, that we're all perhaps vulnerable to different substances. I mean, I think that there are things out there that some people would love if they took that other people would just go, oh, I didn't like that feeling at all. But then switch the substance to something else, and the first person who liked that other substance may hate it, but the person that didn't like the first substance would be like, oh, well, that's my, that's my drug of choice. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I would hate to have somebody do some sort of an addiction test on me for coffee. But if I was addicted to coffee, would somebody say you shouldn't be able to do it? Now, they may say, listen, Dan, that much coffee is bad for your health. Uh, I would recommend uh, cutting down for that reason. And that's understandable. And, and to me, I've always thought a lot of this is a doctor-patient thing. But what if society said, listen, Dan, you shouldn't be able to drink that much coffee because, you know, you lost productivity and all that. I think the idea that people want to do this stuff is the crux of the issue. And I think the fact that it's a part of human nature dictates that you're always going to have a screwed up society if it's organized in a way that completely ignores human nature. Philadelphia calling about the recent episode on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That episode really scratched one of my pet peeves, particularly with the Tom Harton and the Young Turks segment. And the way that we lose sovereignty is the same way that we already lost some of our sovereignty with NAFTA and GATT, the WTO. And then in the trade deal, you say that those sovereign countries can't even argue with that trade deal. If that court says the ExxonMobil is right and the people of Australia are wrong, that's a sad day for the people of Australia. You've lost your sovereignty. Where they were talking about national sovereignty, and I really don't feel like that's a useful concept anymore when we talk about how to deal with global problems like multinational corporations that have more money than many small countries around the world. Honestly, I feel like while we have you know, global trade, global capital, global communication, global media, two things that really stick out to me as being missing are global freedom, freedom of movement, which is a little beyond the scope here, and global governance, uh, particularly global democratic government governance that can be re used to rein in the private sector. You know, the, the best analogy I can come up with is that right now we're trying to run 21st century software 
on a 17th century operating system. You know, the idea of national sovereignty goes back to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, and obviously the world was a very different place back then. The first multinational corporation was only about 50 years old, the East India Company. Travel wasn't as easy. Colonization was just getting underway in the Americas. So, you know, we're in a completely different world now, and I just don't know that we can rely on that sort of a structure to truly rein in some of the problems that we have. And I think we need to think in two directions to solve this, both larger and smaller. Uh, first, a, a larger global governance organization to tackle issues like uh, financial controls, global warming, and human rights, but also to devolve as much power as possible to local democratic organizations. Obviously, the devil is in the details. Uh, one single global government would be much easier to buy off, and many smaller local governments all over the place could lead to balkanization, which would not be particularly useful in confronting the challenges we currently face. But all that said, I think that trying to use the current system that we have of nation-states really isn't going to get the job done when going up against malefactors like J.P. Morgan or Citibank or Goldman Sachs. Thanks a lot, Jay, and keep it up. Hello, my name is Mark. I live in New Mexico, but I grew up in the South, South Carolina. And I uh, would like to comment um, to support uh, Avra, the girl from Alabama. Hey, my name is Avra from Alabama. I just heard the reproductive rights uh, episode and really wanted to throw her support from a man from the South. It has nothing to do with anything other than making sure that women stay in their place and don't have sex. Coming from the South and seeing both sides of it, I really, I really stand firm on that position. I really think that's what it's about. I grew up in South Carolina and saw many of the same things she did, uh, women being shamed for sexuality and just an incredible amount of hypocrisy, abstinence being always held up like this carrot, um, impossible achieve to achieve thing, uh, and a complete just ignorant view on birth control and reproductive rights. And, you know, you always saw ministers cheating on their wives and all kinds of sexual scandals in the Baptist churches, and that was so common. It just uh, gave it left a bad taste in my mouth. So I, I moved away from the South, and honestly, I'll never go back. I'll never raise kids there. It's just a poisonous place for the children to grow up in, I think. And I would like to offer support to her from other people from the South who agree completely. I think that's a huge part of this issue. It's also extended through Congress and a lot of the crazy stuff coming out of the congressional, you know, people's mouths these days come from that same mentality. So I would really like to see more uh, maybe discussion and on that topic and see it for what it is. Um, best of luck and support to you, Abra from Alabama. And Jay, you're awesome. Keep it up. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. It's Jake from New Hampshire again. I just finished listening to the episode. The end there with Mara and the unnamed caller talking about the analogy between being hooked up to someone to sustain their life and carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term. Mara was getting into all the different sort of nuances of, like, how responsible you are based on, you know, how much prior knowledge you had, et cetera, et cetera. But I think... 
it's not actually necessary because even if you voluntarily go and hook yourself up to the person to sustain their life, do we really think that you, just because you said you would, means that you now have to? Like, say that I voluntarily, because I, I like this person, I want to keep them alive, with, I would be more than happy to provide my body to sustain them, but then, say, two months in, I decide, you know what, actually, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm really sorry, and I know it means you're going to die, but I don't want to anymore. Do we really think that you are now required to stay? I think, intuitively, I think that you don't. Perhaps a lot of people would disagree with me, but I think that even if you are intentionally trying to have a baby when you have intercourse with someone, even if you're trying to become pregnant, I still don't think you do intuitively. It doesn't seem to me that you necessarily have to have that baby after you've conceived. So anyway, just putting it on that. Uh, thanks again for your platform and your show and all the great work you do. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. I'd like to weigh in on the personhood debate. The one aspect of this I never hear anybody discuss is what is the quality of life. Has anybody ever asked any abused, neglected, hungry, unwanted child what their views are on abortion and personhood? And I can speak to this with some experience. I had a childhood of horrific abuse, which has left me with a lifetime of medical and psychological scars. My younger brother did not survive this abuse. And watching somebody else die at the hands of people who did not want this child is something nobody should have to watch. And if you think this is uncommon, you are wrong. If you know five children in America, one of them is abused, neglected, hungry, or unwanted. What is life? If life is just surviving and being miserable, that's not life. So I hope some people will take this in as part of their consideration while they're making their judgment on what is right and what is wrong. Consider more than the woman. Consider the child. The child's life is more important than the child's existence. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just to respond to the last caller that we heard, I think it was a really good and important point uh, that she was making, and you know, I, I wouldn't dare say that I understand the frustration she's feeling, but you know, I, I have a sense that I understand to some degree, the the frustration she's feeling uh, about having that topic never uh, brought up or, or very rarely brought up, though I do think I sort of understand why it's rare for that issue to be brought up, you know, as if reproductive rights weren't a touchy enough sub subject already, you know, the last thing that any anyone would want to do is to try to speak to that issue and not quite be able to thread that needle just right to, you know, to talk about maybe statistically speaking unwanted children, you know, who end up being born are more, you know, prone and vulnerable to abuse. Uh, but, you know, to be clear, it would be a ridiculous statement to say that, you know, anyone who is interested in having an abortion 
would abuse the child should it be born. And you know, so to, to be able to say just the right thing and not confuse and really, really anger huge swaths of people is a difficult thing. And so, you know, really for, for most people, better to just steer clear of that because, you know, if there is one lesson that I could tell you that I've learned uh, from the experience of producing a show in which opinions are expressed, uh, people will insist on misunderstanding you at every opportunity they can. And, and that that particular topic is uh, is one that just seems particularly prone to, you know, willful misunderstanding. But I, I very much appreciate that the caller wanted to call in and share a personal experience and, and bring that perspective. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left, nominating us for a Shorty Award. There's a link to that at bestofleft.com. That's for all of our great uh, social media work that we've been doing. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're doing.